Welcome to Grain on the Brain, a podcast started by the Prairie Organic Grain Initiative and now hosted by the Manitoba Organic Alliance. We're working to create resiliency and stability in the prairie organic grain sector. Our host is Scott Beaton, who operates a 640-acre organic farm in Manitoba. Tune in as each episode Scott talks to researchers, farmers, and other experts in the organic sector to discuss important issues in organic grain farming. Check out our website at manitobaorganicalliance.com for resources, tools, and the expertise you need to get you growing. You can connect with us on Twitter at Manitoba Organic or come meet us at one of the events that we host. Today, Scott interviews Cody Straza and Ian Cushion in a live panel format recorded at the Organic Connection Show in Saskatoon. Both are experienced organic farmers and they cover a wide variety of topics, including species diversity, green manures, soil fertility, livestock, and more. So I'm pleased to introduce Scott uh, Beaton, who's the host of Grain on the Brain podcast, an organic farmer and one of this year's organic heroes. In this session, Scott will be interviewing Ian Cushion and Cody Straza in a live audience recording of Grain on the Brain. You can look forward to a fast-paced conversation about soils, crops, and cows, and it should be informative and entertaining. So no pressure. You guys need to entertain. <laughs> so thank you for the introduction. That is a lot of pressure. We may not teach you anything, I guess, but we will try our hardest to entertain you. Um, Ian said he's pretty good at dancing. <laughs> I was thinking this is a great opportunity to, uh, you know, have coffee row in front of our closest friends. But the difference is that when I say something about organic, I, they're always kind of laughing at me. So I'm not sure I'm going to be that funny. But <laughs> they're laughing at me for the wrong reasons. <laughs> But we got... It's okay, we'll, we'll be laughing with you this time. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> right on. So, uh, first, thanks very much for having me. Um, I operate a, a section of organic grain uh, just northwest of Winnipeg, and I was asked to come and host this panel, and I kind of said, well, I'm not sure I'm representative of, of you guys and what the organic farmers in Saskatchewan need to know. Um, and so a big part of this afternoon's event here, I hope, is that you guys are going to ask some questions of these guys because they've got a lot of knowledge to share. Uh, Ian's been organic since 85, I think I read in his, uh, his paragraph there. Yep. And Cody's been doing this for about 10 years as well. Um, so I'm going to ask the first few questions, but at some point you guys better start standing up and asking some too. And we'll, uh, we'll try and guide the discussion around some of the stuff that's important to those of you in the room. Um, so I'll maybe just start by letting you each introduce yourselves a little bit for those that didn't read the, the pamphlet. Okay, uh, I'm Cody Straza. I, uh, along with my wife, Allison, who was just up here, uh, we farm uh, Upland Organics. We farm at uh, Wood Mountain, Saskatchewan, which is pretty much straight south of here, just this side of the Montana border. Um, we've got uh, grain, or organic grains, uh, mostly uh, derm, corzan, flax, lentils, peas, oats, a lot of your, your typical stuff. Uh, we do a fair amount of cover crops. 
We also have a beef herd that we graze our uh, cover crops with. So we do the rotational grazing where we move them every day with poly wire, haul water, all that fun stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of us. Oh, we have a seed cleaning plant. We, so with our, we do intercropping and we'll um, uh, separate the different crops at our seed plant. And I'm sure that I'll think of lots of other stuff that will come up later. Yeah, I'm Ian Cushion from uh, Moose Creek Organic Farm down near Oxbow. I farm with my wife and son, Liam. Um, we grow wheat, uh, oats, flax, hemp, and alfalfa seed are our main crops. But we, over the course of 30 years of organic farming, we've tried a lot of, uh, a lot of different things. We sometimes grow spelt. We've grown buckwheat. Um, we've grown caraway, uh, mustard, yellow mustard sometimes. Uh, we tried lentils for a long time, but gave up. We're just too wet. Um, we have a lot of acres, so uh, uh, we rely on a lot of alfalfa in our rotation as a seed crop and also as a, as a soil building crop and a, and a crop that really helps us to rejuvenate our, our, uh, our fields that aren't performing really well. So uh, my apologies to those people in the brown soil zone where I don't think alfalfa is as, as useful. Um, I, I really, I'm probably going to talk a l quite a bit about alfalfa and uh, I realize it's not for everyone but it has a big fit on in the thin black soil zone for sure and I think it works reasonably well in the moist dark brown soil zones uh, for especially for cattle producers who, who will have it for forages. Um, we also have a small uh, seed cleaning plant. Um, we do limited amounts of intercropping. Uh, unless you count our weeds. We've got lots of intercropped weeds, <laughs> and, uh, but unfortunately the market's not that great for them. So um, uh, what else should I mention here? Uh, probably that, you know, we, you know, I've tried so many different things over the years and I've kind of settled into something I think which makes sense in our situation. It's a, you know, it's a challenge being an organic farmer. It's a challenge being a farmer, period. But organic, you know, is a, it's a real challenge to provide fertility and to manage uh, weeds and to, uh, to, you know, pay attention to the market and make sure you can make, make a living doing what we're doing. And I think we've been successful uh, to a certain degree, but I have, my, I have my concerns for the future in terms of, uh, of managing our land. All right, on. Okay, thank you, guys. Um, I guess the first question that I came up with as I was thinking about this on the drive out, um, what do you guys see as being kind of the low-hanging fruit, the things that you've started doing that you feel like are, are things that people in your area and in, in these kind of in an organic system really need to consider just to improve resiliency and profitability in their operations? Uh, that, that's a, a tough one because everybody's farm is unique and it's their own. And to say what is uh, a solution that will fit across the board is a, a really, that's a loaded question, Scott. I apologize. Yeah, come on. <laughs> um, one of the things we did on our farm that was relatively uh, painless was adding diversity. Um, with our cover crops, we used to grow either uh, forage peas, just monocrop forage peas and disc them in, or yellow blossom sweet clover and again disc it in. 
it started off just as simple as adding oats. Add oats to the forage peas, and we grew peas and oats, disc those in. Now we're growing four, five, eight different things in our cover crops, and it's just a matter of ordering one more thing in the blend now. Um, intercropping is another way we increase diversity, where we plant the two crops together, harvest them together, separate them later. Uh, it's, that's not quite as painless as the cover crop uh, stuff, but it is uh, another way to add diversity. Yeah, right on. I think I, I, I understand what you're saying. That came across as a tough question, but I, I think that's a really good point, and I think something that we can all do more of is try and, uh, I know complex, diversity sometimes feels like it comes at the cost of complexity, um, but I think in a situation where it's something like a cover crop, uh, having a little more diversity will do you more good than harm, in my mind. Well, and the diversity has to have a reason as well. You can't just be diverse just because it's a good idea or for the, the sake of checking a box. There, there has to be a reason for it. And so like for our uh, uh, cover crops, we're looking at like different rooting depths, different rooting structures of different plants or different uh, uh, plant profiles that some grow along the ground, some grow up tall. Like we'll throw in a pound of sunflowers and they grow up really tall. Uh, Broadleafs, legumes, cereals, uh, they all contribute something different to that, that blend and mix. So each, each species is there for a reason, and, but it also has to make sense to put it in as well. Yeah, great points, Cody. Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm still running across farms that don't have uh, green manures in their rotation. They're still doing black summer follow on occasion, and, and I'm, you know, I think there's legitimate reasons why they're not doing them, but re it really is a zero. You're you're not going to get anything out of that farm in in 20 or 30 years. It's it's just not possible to do that. So I think, you know, and and, and green manure crops are often prone to failure. So uh, having a backup plan for the years when it's dry and there isn't a good green manure crop, I mean, is it's as simple as, you know, putting in perhaps an oat crop or a rye cover, cover crop and, and at least producing something that protects the soil and puts some carbon back into the soil so that you've got some organisms working, working away, you've provided some plant food. And uh, we don't have livestock on our farm, so I always think of my livestock as the organisms that are in the soil. And I, you know, this is maybe totally wrong, but I always think that the, the life in the soil, the organisms that are there, it's far greater than any of the mass that I can actually run as a cattle producer on, on the surface of, of the soil. Uh, but there's really good reasons to have cattle, obviously. Biodiversity, you've got a marketable source of uh, uh, meat, and you've, you can make use of marginal land, you can make use of years crops when the year, you know, years when the crops aren't that great so there's there's a lot of reasons to do it but there's also a lot of reasons not to do it uh, <laughs> I can think of a whole lot of reasons why I don't want to be out feeding cows in the middle of January and uh, you know I'm lazy uh, you know let's be honest it's hard work being a cattle producer so so can we farm organically without livestock? I think we can, but our attention to providing nutrients and bringing in nutrients from outside the farm has to be, I think, really, really uh, precise. You have to be thinking long-term. You have to be realizing that 
for everything that we produce and ship off the farm, we're drawing nutrients from the soil that, uh, that often need to be replaced. Nitrogen is not the issue. We can grow lots of nitrogen fixing crops. I think the biggest issue, and I'm going to talk more about it later, is phosphorus. Uh, many of our soils after 30 years are depleted to the point where we can't grow a good green manure crop. So we had to pay attention to, well, if we can't grow a good green manure crop on our farm, then crop rotation isn't going to help us. It's not going to solve the problem. Where is that phosphorus going to come from? And uh, I can talk more about that. Um, variety selection is a very important thing to do. We've still got producers who are growing uh, occasionally a variety of wheat called Brandon. Well, Brandon is a really short-strawed uh, variety which isn't weed competitive. And it's very productive in high input systems, but it is, it's a total dud in uh, wild oat com comp competition. It just does not perform worth a darn. I've seen it in our trials. We're fortunate enough to have hosted the University of Manitoba in the Bauda Seed Initiative uh, participatory plant breeding uh, trials for wheat, varieties that have been selected by farmers, and uh, it's been a really a great learning experience. And one of the things we wanted to do was also compare the varieties that we use and also some of the, the varieties that many other farmers use. And Brandon was a terrible performer most years. In the good years when, it wasn't, when there wasn't a lot of uh, weed competition, then Brandon looked really good. And I know it's a very, very popular wheat, but I, honestly, I don't know why any organic farmer would want to grow it. So, I mean, that's just one example. And call me out if I'm wrong. I mean, if Brandon is your favorite variety, uh, make your case. Um, <laughs> and the other thing that we did was we were having issues with uh, uh, getting good establishment uh, for crops like hemp and flax. And uh, so we got, we got a piece of seeding equipment, it's, a, it's pretty old, but you'll see it on many organic farms. Uh, it's a John Deere, John Deere 730 with, it's got a press, a press drill, uh, it's got double disc openers on the back, it's a cultivator in front of basically a press drill with an air tank in front of it. And it's a simple piece of equipment, you know, it's not, it's not for high residue situations, but it does an excellent job of shallow seeding hemp and flax. So, it's made a tremendous difference to our, our performance on those crops. Uh, because without good establishment, you know, those crops are, you know, generally don't do that well, although flax is more forgiving than hemp. Hemp is a total disaster if you screw up at the seeding stage. And Ian, what were you seeding with? We still use, for most of our cereals, is uh, it's a, basically a FlexCoil 5000. It's a, it's a it's a New Holland one, a little newer one, but it's a hoe drill with, uh, you know, press drill, basically. And we've got nine-inch sweeps on it, and we also have a broadcast attachment on it, so we sow all our clovers, and uh, alfalfa's out in front of the seeder in a one-pass seeding operation. So we get a one-pass seeding operation. In a dry spring, we'll actually go out and uh, direct seed into the fallow acres, and we can do it into stubble as well. Uh, and we can do a one-pass seeding operation without doing pre-seeding tillage uh, and depleting our moisture situation. So we get a really dry spring, and I think, well, I can get away with some early seeding on some of these fields that aren't at risk of wild oat problems. We'll do a, a direct seeding into the fallow acres and get an early start to take advantage of, you know, the moisture that's there in an early seeding situation. 
So do you harrow or anything afterwards for weed control? Or you just let it go as is? We tend to let it go as it is because with this, with the Flexicoil 5000, uh, the packer, there's a valley and a, and a hill. And if you harrow, you've, you increase the seeding depth. So I don't really want to do that unless it's a desperate situation. I think it, I think it's a, it's a, you know, a, a good thing to do in some circumstances with some crops. Uh, Pre-emergent harrowing is a, you know, really great thing to do, but I tend to shy away from it because I want really strong, quick emergence, and whenever you harrow, you end up getting a little slower emergence. It's not as critical on, on, uh, on uh, cereals, which can come from two or three inches uh, below, but it is more critical for shallow-seeded crops. Probably use it more on, if I was still growing peas and lentils, definitely we'd be doing a lot of pre-emergent harrowing. I'm glad to hear you talk about that deer 730. I sold mine to Colin McDonald, and I saw in his pictures earlier that he had a no-till drill, and he, it sounds like he got rid of it, so I hope it didn't work out that badly for him. Um, Cody, what do you seed with? I think seeding equipment is actually it's something that I think a lot about, and, and I think that getting a good, strong start is, uh, is really important. And so, yeah, what do you seed with and why? Uh, we've got pretty much the same thing as what Ian's got. It's a blue Flexi 5000. Uh, seven inch spacings, three quarter inch openers. So we're, we do pretty much all our acres get a pre-seed tillage pass, a cultivator with a dead rod, so we're getting a, a complete uh, pass across all the soil. And uh, then we'll seed directly in behind that a couple days later. Um, I do also have a no-till drill. It's kind of a, a cobbled together kind of machine. It's an old Morris cultivator that somebody took all the shanks off and put openers from a Flexi 6000 on. Um, and I've got it hooked up to the same air cart tank that I can just take that off the, the hoe drill, put it onto the disc drill. And I've also got it set up so we can inter-row seed. So we've done the alternating rows of flax and chickpeas. Um, I've done cereal and mustard. I've done a few different things. Once I had it set up, I had to inter-row everything. Just that we were intercropping just because it was fun and because we could, but uh, I found out that there wasn't really a benefit for that, so we just run it through the big drill, uh, single shoot that way. I'm doing a lot of the intercropping. But if we want to seed into a high residue situation, like uh, for a few years we were playing with a roller crimper, and into the, the mat that that leaves, we would just come in with that disc drill and slice through the mat and seed uh, directly in. Right on. I have the same, I've got the old FlexiCoil 5000 uh, as well too and yeah we run one with sweeps and one with uh, just three quarter inch openers to, uh, depending on what we're doing I guess it depends so they're that cheap that you can buy two of them on a one section farm so if anybody needs one they're out there um, ideas on how to come overcome some kind of production issues that you've encountered in your operations. I know, um, Ian, you spoke about uh, quite a bit of alfalfa being in the rotation. Um, I've often struggled with establishing small seeded uh, crops, whether that's a part of your green manure or just if you're trying to get some clover and things like that. Um, I don't know if you'd have some advice on, on that one in particular or if there's something else that you'd rather talk about here. The floor is yours. Well, we, we did a lot of annual green manures over the years, uh, forage peas, uh, and then we 
we found that peas weren't performing well uh, because of uh, phosphorus levels primarily and weed issues and root diseases. Peas, you know, we're in the southeast and, you know, it, it, it alternates a bit between dry and wet, but because we get the Colorado lows, we get a lot of wet springs and uh, peas seem to be an issue for conventional producers in our area as well. So I've kind of had to move away. Plus the cost of seeding peas is, you know, and annual green manures is pretty high. I mean, if you want to use oats, I've tried oats and 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 an annual clover, bersim clover. Um, that's a good backup plan because it's co it's cost effective. Bersim, I'm not sure about as a as a clover option whether it really performs well in that annual situation. But when it comes to most of our green manures, we've kind of gone to a blend of of uh, two pounds of yellow blossom and eight pounds of red. Now red doesn't perform really well in drier conditions, but the yellow uh, typically you know, it's pretty reliable. Now, the big problem with yellow in a wet year is it'll outgrow the crop and really take over and that becomes a real pain at harvest because we want to do direct, uh, direct harvest, we want to do straight cut in clover. So this year we had a little bit of an issue with some fields that were a little bit uh, too much clover, but we swathed a couple of them and then the rest of them we actually were able to put a, quite a bit of clover through and it wasn't an issue. But we find that broadcast cedar, now it's a, it's a flexicoil granular attachment that would be common. If you look in flexicoil's catalog or parts, you'll see that at one time they had a, a broadcast cedar attachment. We, we found a used one, believe it or not, and, and put it on a 57 foot, but we also have a 39 foot that is the same drill with uh, you know basic 7.2 inch spacing. And it seems like that broadcast seeding right out in front of the seeding tool is really good. It's not really deep, but we get good establishment on clovers and alfalfas uh, year in, year out. The big, the big issue is always which crop you're gonna underseed. Uh, when we're trying to start alfalfa, it's much more sensitive to um, competition uh, from cereals like oats and wheat. It doesn't establish as strongly or as well. We tend to put it with our uh, flax and hemp where it does really well. Um, we did it with lentils, we tried it with soybeans, less competitive, shorter crops with more light and the alfalfa gets off to a better start. But, uh, you know, I think there's other methods, a, a, a Balmar attachment and a harrow or, a, you know, a, a separate operation or a Balmar attached to a harrow I think is a great option. Um, you know, we live in a fairly good moisture area so most years we do fairly well. Rare we don't see a good establishment with those clovers and alfalfa and uh, I like the blend. Um, reds, you know, it's, 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 it's a fibrous root, not very deep rooted. Yellow is deep rooted. It's very aggressive. I mean, we got delayed this year into July and we had five foot clover to plow down and you know, it's, it's kind of horrible stuff by that time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, how are we going to get rid of this so we can ever get a chisel plow through it? But, you know, two passes with a heavy tandem offset disc and away we go, we can usually get through it. So You need cows. I, we need cows, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, are you willing to bring them over? <laughs> I, just kidding. It, it's not the cows, it's all the, the hole in the water and the fence. And then the, no. I'll drop them off, you look after them, absolutely. Well, we're we're in good shape. We actually have some pretty good neighbors with lots of cows. It's kind of cattle country. It's pothole country. Our quarters average 130 acres typically and there's a lot of cover here and a lot of a lot of water on our farm. So uh, I mean uh, I'd be happy to partner with a neighbor if I could get along with them. You know 
and I'm probably the problem. I don't. I'm not saying the neighbor's the problem, but uh, no, it's it's really about managing a relationship with the neighbor and making sure everybody's happy, and that's a challenge. And then there's a bunch of decisions you have to make. I struggle making decisions. I mean, that's the biggest problem is there's just too many decisions every year. <laughs> and you go, oh, my God, i got to make another decision. And sometimes it's not easy. And so, you know, add in cattle into the operation, and the, well, you can probably triple the decisions you have to make. And then you have to do <laughs> conflict resolution. So I don't know. <laughs> It and works itself you know, out. You have three times the decisions, <laughs> but you have a third the amount of time to make them, so yeah. you just start throwing darts yeah, at the wall. I don't know. It's, it's uh, you know, you never know what will happen, but... Uh. Something we've been doing on our farm lately as part of our uh, cover crop uh, fees is we've been doing uh, some perennials. Yeah. And we've been doing alfalfa and grasses and blends. Yeah. And I know you've been doing this for a long time, so I'd like to hear more of you, about your blends and your rotation. Because, um, like I said, we're just getting into this, and I'd like to learn more about it. Yeah, well, you know, I, as, as I said, I've tried a lot of different annual cover crops, and, I, and I, I wasn't as adventurous, and I was scared off by the high seed prices for a lot of the cover crops. It just seemed to me I'm not going to spend 60 bucks an acre to to do a cover crop when I can you know, put, you know, eight pounds of clover down and, and it costs me two or three dollars a pound. It's, pre it's pretty cheap, plus the cost it's eating. So, um, you know, and the over, the one thing I say, I should say about the over-reliance on clover is uh, it's difficult to deal with Canada thistle problems or any perennial weed problem uh, in that situation because you can't really do a whole lot of fall tillage but that doesn't mean that you can't go out and do spot tillage on the thistle patches in your in your cereal crops uh, or your stubble uh, in the fall so there's some options there um, I think we would benefit from having more variety in our uh, in our in our cover crops uh, I think we could use rye to a, a big advantage as a even a even a fall cover just take it a plant it in the fall and take it out in the spring and, and try that. We've done that a couple of times. Uh, I don't grow a lot of rye. I grew, I've got 300 acres in this spring or this fall and I'm hopeful that it's going to be a good crop. It's on transitional uh, land and uh, you know it just was a good fit in terms of a transitional crop for us. So I think it has a fit. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question but it's you know I've come to the conclusion that we've got to keep our costs down Clovers work well. Yellow is a bit unreliable, uh, but annuals are just—they're just expensive. They're just expensive, and we can save quite a bit of tillage. So, when you think about it, you're underseeding your wheat or whatever crop you want to grow, and it's in—it's not being tilled until the following June, July. So. You really got a fairly small window when you're doing intensive tillage, and it, it and sure tillage is a problem uh, if you overwork it. But the reality is, with clovers and alfalfas and you know those those crops, you're really getting a huge amount of time when there's a living root in the soil and you've got something there protecting the soil. So, and then you get all the residue that that comes with the plow down. So, so once you get your alfalfa and clovers established, how long is it? growing before like if, do you leave it in for a year two years three years we'll 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 go anywhere from one to five years with alfalfa and in case of clovers it's just a biennial so we're doing a 
you know, basically plan it one year, plow it down the next. But alfalfa, we're pretty flexible on. If it doesn't establish well, we'll take it out. If we want to go back to a, a cash crop, we'll take it out. If we've got a problem field, we'll leave it in for five years. So I've got a couple of really bad fields for wild oats. Horrible, horrible, horrible. It looked like <laughs> a terrible bat. It was a combination of really wet weather, high nutrient levels, and a tremendous flush of wild oats. So those fields, one was already underseeded with oats, uh, or alfalfa underseeded into the oats. We're planning on having it in. The, the other one is going to go into rye with alfalfa, and we're going to leave it in for five years. And I've got two or three fields that have come out of long-term alfalfa stands that had wild oat problems, had fertility issues, and they're very, they're really nice right now. Uh, we grew hemp on them and flax, and they're both, they were super clean, let's put it that way. They were, you know, they were, there were some weeds left over. You don't get rid of everything, but the conditions are really good. Right on. I'm not seeing anybody lining up at the uh, microphones yet, but I assume there's, they're going to rush right up here. Yeah, th this is supposed to be an open conversation. That <laughs> yeah. uh, this, we're not waiting for the end for Q and A. Okay, I think we've got a couple of takers. We'll yeah. start oh, start yeah. on the right here. He he started going towards the microphone second, but he made it there first. <laughs> yeah, just uh, uh, a couple questions. Um, can you make? Um, a comment on seeding um, half of your bushel, like if you're putting down five bushel or four bushel, seeding half your bushel one direction and lifting up a little bit, you know, quarter inch, half an inch, and then seeding another half of your, whatever you're putting on for that year in the other direction. Have you, like I've done that with peas with great success to cut down on weed pressure, but I'm just wondering if you've done it with anything, any other seed. So. Cross-seeding, I think, is what I've heard that called, whether I'm right or wrong, or maybe I've made that up. Uh, I know I, we've played around with it just uh, when we had a little wider row spacing equipment. Um, and since we've gone, we're on a 7.2-inch row now as well, and I feel like I run out a day too fast most, most of the time. So right. um, we've been doing it in one pass lately, but, yeah, I don't know, you guys might have some... Some better ideas. I think depending on what what it is that you're seeding, you may uh, see some some benefit to that uh, as much as anything else in my mind. Yeah, no, we've actually never even tried it. Um, we, again, with the narrower row space, because we're on the same 7.2s, usually we can get a fairly quick canopy closure on most things. Uh, so it hasn't been too much of a problem for us. Uh, not Not to the point that we've tried... But that's actually in some fields that, like you were talking about, it's got some extra weed pressure uh, history on it. Might not be a bad thing to try. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, we see it every year in our when we do our turns. So we're double seeding basically the, you know, we're doing our passes and then we're doing the outside. Well, we do the outside rounds first. We do two passes and then, you know, we'll see wherever we overlap with the, the straight runs that we've got double seeding. So we got double the rate. We got... Uh, you know, we're using the seedbed as much as possible. And I, I think it has, you know, in weedy, really weedy situations, I think it has some advantages. But typically in our most years, you know, the, the narrow row spacings at 7.2, and in the case of our John Deere 730 drill, uh, those six-inch spacings 
uh, and you can get equipment that's even narrower. Of course, there's some really nice new drills that are down to four inch, I think, from, from Europe. Uh, to me, that, that's the most important strategy. I wouldn't, unless it was something really highly valuable and I knew it was absolutely going to make or break a crop, I, I probably wouldn't do it. Um, right. uh, the main thing for us is, you know, we don't want to place our less competitive crops in a poor part of the rotation where we know there's a lot of weed pressure. Uh, so, and our seeding rates are really high. Like we're, well, not super high on flax particularly, but on cereals we're up, on wheat we're up to about 180 pounds uh, of, uh, so three bushels an acre, and we're up to about four bushels an acre of 40 pound bushel oats typically, the seed oats are heavy. So mm -hmm. we try to, you know, we've got a lot of seed in the ground and fairly narrow row spacing because we get three and a, with that flax soil, we get three and a half inches of seed spread. And then we've got a packer that's three and a half inch. And so there's not a lot of ground that's not really covered. I mean, and cereals grow quickly. So, right. yeah, it's worth trying. But you're, every year you take a look at your ends and see whether you think it's worth, you know. Right. I mean, you're doubling the seeding rate, so it's not a fair trial. But is it really, are those, are those areas of the field that much better? I don't know. Mm. I do know uh, a farm near us that uh, they seed, uh, they broadcast whenever the conditions are right, and uh, they'll seed flax because it's just a small seed or uh, fall rye, and they put it on. I think it's a uh, it's a broadcast kit on a harrow. I think they do seventy feet at nine miles per hour, so they can and a big seed cart on front. You can do a lot of mm -hmm. acres in a day like that, mm -hmm. and no no row spacings like it's tight, uh, so. That might be another option to look at broadcasting. Nice. Yep. Yeah, and secondly, um, you were talking about alfalfa um, having almost, uh, I, what's the word, an allotropic effect on the soil uh, to prevent oats from, from coming in future years? Is that what you're saying? You, you plant alfalfa down to uh, cut down on wild oat pressure? You're, you're talking to me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, I, five years... Of alfalfa and really the wild oat pressure is okay. pretty minimal. Like it, you'll still see a few, but no, it really seems to be effective at reducing wild okay. oat populations. What wild mustard still there a little bit more, so we still see a little bit. But even wild mustard gets down to levels okay. that are very reasonable okay. compared to what I would see after 30 years of farming. And, and you know, we we did a lot of stupid things. Uh, you know, trying to grow soybeans and and and. Back in the day when we didn't have as much land, we also, you know, we were trying to push acres and we weren't as committed to taking out the poor year, the poor fields in the poor years as we should have been. So we have a legacy of, you know, 30 years of, of uh, organic okay. seed bank. And yet when we go into, when we've got into the fields that have had a good history of either hayland or, and we don't do a lot of our own hay, but we've taken over some hayland, we just don't see a lot of weed pressure. So that gives us three or four years a really good cropping situation that, that is okay. pretty weed-free, and we can produce hemp, we can produce flax, we can produce oats, we can produce a lot of stuff. Like we did some wheat on flax stubble this year, and it was you know really high protein, very clean, good yield. Um, could have been oats, would have been the same thing. It was just you know ideal situation. We can go back into into flax again perhaps or mm -hmm. something else but we may want to cut it short and just not build up the weed level 
to uh, right. uh, you know, a, a, a challenge. And it's not that the weed seeds aren't there. It's just that the, I think it's called allotrophic or allotrophic effect on the soil. Allopathic, I think you're thinking. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah, it's I'm a, not the science guy. And I think alfalfa definitely is allopathic. So the, the, seed, the weed seeds are there. It's just that they're not going to thrive in that environment. Yeah, I'm not the I'm I yeah, I think that's part of it for sure. Okay. I'm also thinking that, you know, that essentially that there, you know, a lot of those weed seeds have, you know, some of them have become unviable too. So they're just not going to grow period. They're well, done. Yeah, I'm just wondering about yeah. wild oats because yeah, yeah, we've we've broke up land that's 25 years seeded to uh, you know, crested wheat and brome and whatever and uh lo and behold there's wild oats that are coming from when my grandpa remembers from 25 <laughs> years ago you know yeah so well, to not have them come after four or five years like you're talking about is yeah that's pretty fantastic yeah well no we do we've seen that a few times over the years and uh it's it allows us to do some of the some of the stubble cropping that we want to do and it also just gives us a chance to do the higher value crops like hemp and flax uh, that are and not leave a, a huge problem with weeds. One quick comment on that. I think if you're thinking about managing weeds through seeding, I think, uh, yeah, kind of what Ian alluded to with seeding rates is really important. Um, Doug this morning spoke about uh, his desire to use organic seed, and I kind of share his sentiment to some degree. I think the only thing that makes me do it uh, more often than not is we we operate a seed cleaning plant too and I can often scalp off some of the bigger seed and I think using that the big plump wheat seeds um, helps it get out of the ground a little bit faster and so for that reason I, I think it helps a lot. Um, the last question of the day, he's been thinking about it here for five minutes so it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid to start you guys because it goes on and on and on. Um, I'm not an admirer of annual cover crop. Uh, Ian has spoken at great depth about uh, sweet clover and alfalfa. Those I like. You know, if you, if you put a sweet clover down the year before, you put an alfalfa down the year before, you've got nice cover uh, and you've got a nice plow down. You've got, you know, some real growth on that land that you want to green manure. We've had no luck whatsoever for, with... Uh, with various combinations of annual crops. And part of it's our fault, I think, because uh, we're not anxious to seed green manure land first. We want to seed lentils first, because we want number two lentils in the fall, not number five lentils in the fall. So uh, we seed them late, uh, but there's no mass there. I, I, we're southwest of Saskatoon. We're a drier area. Uh, maybe we're just not suited to it, but I have not seen yet an annual cover crop that I liked. Uh, that's number one. And number two, nobody's talked about inter-row cultivation. We do it. We do it with lentils in particular. That's why we brought the inter-row cultivator. We have wider spacing so we can do that. We can do inter-row cultivating. And I think it has real potential. Not so great where you have a lot of Canada thistle, but otherwise. Yeah, well, I agree. <laughs> annual <laughs> annual green manures have not worked on our farm and uh, I did intro cultivation many years ago we were going organic sunflowers it worked like a hot dam I haven't been willing to take on intro cultivation of lentils because I don't think we're in a lentil growing area but I, I admire those people who do it uh, 
I'm less enamored by the idea of inter-row cultivation in cereals because I just don't think it pays off. And, uh, you know, but I, I, I agree. I, I really, I, you know, I saw some good pea crops over the years, but they, it, the pea performance started to go like that, and I, I gave up uh, when it came to forage peas, so. Um, go ahead. Oh, on the, the comment of uh, annuals and perennials, I think on, on our farm we're, uh, we're incorporating more and more perennials to get a bit of a balance. We've been very annual heavy. And one of the things I like about annuals is you can adapt on the fly for the upcoming year. If, if you've got a dry spring, you can adapt to it. If you've got a, a wet late spring, you can adapt to that. Um, also, our area is also pretty dry and we have trouble establishing especially a good alfalfa crop. We have had success with uh, yellow clover, but all of the annual clovers are, they haven't been working for us, whether it's persim, persian, um, crimson. We haven't gotten a good establishment of any of those. But other things like, like peas and oats are, for us, that's the workhorse for our yeah. cover crops. And then the other stuff is add in to yeah. just support that and add in little yeah. uh, aspects. Yeah. Oh, I think peas and oats is a great combination. I, I just, uh, I, and I never got a chance to talk about it, and I don't know if I will, but, uh, you know, for us, it was, it was a combination of, uh, I think, low phosphorus level levels in stubble cropping situations. We got down to, you know, like four pounds an acre of available phosphorus in the soil test. Well, guess what? Peas really don't perform in that situation. No surprise. Uh, and so, you know, we were on a... We were basically on a slope to, you know, uh, not being able to produce a whole hell of a lot of, of, of anything. Uh, so, you know, that, that was a serious situation. So uh, maybe I've got a minute, but it... <laughs> uh, we, we, fortunately, what we've started doing is bringing in, uh, because we don't have livestock, we don't have a lot of beef producers in the cost of moving raw manure or even composting local supplies is high. We decided to start importing uh, uh, chicken manure pellets into the system, and they're pretty easy to manage. They're not cheap. It's costing us about 100 bucks an acre to put on 500 pounds, but we were able to move some of those really poor fields, the phosphorus levels, we were able to move them up into the, into the area of good productivity with, you know, one one application of chicken manure. And some of the producers are using as, as much as 1,000 pounds an acre in some cases, which is a whole lot of chicken shit to move around. If Did, didn't <laughs> you have some data and some slides to share with yes, us? Yes, I have one slide I could... Well, Jennifer, the, just get a chair to sit down and, uh, and join the conversation. <laughs> get your own microphone. You're just going to... I mean, they don't want to... You really don't want to drink beer anyway. It's, it's bad for you. It's more important to figure out what the future of organic agriculture is. So there it is, right in front of me. Um, so it, Martin Enns has been, uh, we've had the, the wheat plots that are the participatory wheat plots through the Bowdoin Initiative in the University of Manitoba has managed that. But we also did a little experiment looking at phosphorus sources on our, on our farm. And we decided, Martin Entz at the University of Manitoba, I know many of you know him, he said the easiest thing to do is just apply it to alfalfa. That'll give you an idea of, and it'll save all the hassle with doing it into a, you know, a annual seeded crop. So 
we, we, uh, last year, we, uh, in 2021, we, uh, we put on uh, equivalent of 30 pounds of actual phosphorus into our alfalfa plots. Um, and at the time, the soil test results on alfalfa, and when you look at alfalfa and do a soil test in an established alfalfa crop, it is so low in nutrients, available nutrients, it's all tied up in the plants, right? So we were, actually it was down at two parts per million in our tests. I think they did a test as well, and, and it came to three. Uh, so that, that works out to about six pounds of actual uh, phosphorus available. That's very, very low. I mean, most, most cereal crops would use 20 to 30 pounds you know, to produce 30 or 40 bushels. So uh, those are really small numbers. Anything below five, according to Martin Entz, is, is getting into the danger zone where productivity is going to fall. And we've seen that in our soil testing. Uh, our poorest fields, and we, we just chart it to see what happened, to understand what happened. We, you know, we know that, uh, you know, two to four, are, they're pretty low producing fields. So we've been able to push it up back above five, and some of the most recent land we've taken over that was in sort of uh, hay and unfarmed for a while is up over 13. So we know that, and those are very productive acres. There's a lot of good growth there. Anyway, so what we did was we did a control. Uh, we did digestate replenish, which is a soft ro uh, rock phosphate product combined with compost and sulfur. And we did chicken manure and struvite. Struvite is from, made from wastewater. It's, it's, it's basically a granular form of uh, phosphorus and, and nitrogen. And it was applied to the soil in these small plot situations. So you can see the results in terms of the uptake of phosphorus over the two cuts. Chicken manure looks like it's the highest in total uptake. Uh, the rock phosphate really isn't available. Uh, because when you apply it to the soil, it gets tied up and it becomes unavailable. So chicken manure digestate is a product of uh, anaerobic uh, decomposition. It's in, in this case, it's from food waste uh, that were used, being developed for a fertilizer product. And uh, so we saw pretty good results with the, with the uh, digestate and the chicken manure especially. And especially showed up in the second cut situations where replenish really fell by the wayside. Really not a good source of, uh, of uh, and that would be true of all phosphates, rock phosphates in uh, alkaline soils. So soils above seven, seven. So and our soils are seven to eight typically. So it just doesn't. It isn't available. It's it's like the parent material that phosphorus that's available in the soil, it's really not available to plants to use. So uh, the long and the short of it, to sum up, in the case of phosphorus is, uh, I think chicken manure is an obvious source. It's available. It's organic certified. It gives you a pretty good bang for, it, for, for the buck. I think digestate, if it's available, is another option. Struvite, which is not, not available on the permitted permitted substance list yet. I think there's lots of research being done on that. I think is it's it's a wastewater product. It's recycling nutrients from human waste. Uh, it's relatively clean. It has a few issues, but the reality is we need to live in a, all of nature has a cycle, right? We need to capture the nutrients instead of letting them flow to the rivers and flow to the oceans. We need to capture that phosphorus and start using it back 
on our fields. And uh, I, I, I don't, unfortunately, I just don't see that, you know, I think lots of farmers have taken up and, and those who are composting manure are doing a great job. Those who have cattle on their farms are doing a great job. But for us who don't have a lot of animal inputs and outside sources of fertility, we need to find something to make sure our producti productivity is maintained at a level that, that will secure the future of organic farming. And I think struvite is one of those options that probably is going to be pretty valuable in the future. Very good. Usually I, it, I feel like it's the moderator's fault when we go over time, but I will take no responsibility for what just happened. Um, that was good. I wanted Ian to say the things that he just said because I think they're very important things to, to hear too. Um, one comment on annual green manures. I think there's a value in them uh, as a means to better manage our pastures and give them a break and throw the cows on an annual green manure sometimes. But otherwise, I kind of feel the same way. They're an expensive uh, way to, uh, to cycle nutrients, essentially. Um, that's all the time we have. <laughs> and uh, quite a bit more. <laughs> Uh, but thank you to these guys for coming up and doing it. And thanks very much for everybody for listening. This episode was narrated and edited by me, Jason Peters, from the Manitoba Organic Alliance. Thank you to the staff at Sask Organics for providing us with this recording. If you liked this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any ideas for future episodes? Get in touch with us on Twitter at Manitoba Organic or visit our website and let us know. See you next time.